Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, We remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver, that is Jesus, said, After three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The gods were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. 
Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the gods went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been circulated widely among the Jews to this very day. Well, good evening, everyone. And uh, it's lovely to see you all here. Sir Norman Anderson was professor of oriental law at London University uh, for about 30 years, I think, in the second half of the 20th century. And he describes the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead as either the supreme fact in history or else a gigantic hoax. And this is an important distinction to make because when it comes to the resurrection, the one thing that one cannot be is apathetic. Let me put it this way. Let's say you work on the 21st floor at Canary Wharf. You might do for all I know. And imagine that tomorrow someone rushes into your office and says, there's a fire on the 12th floor. And as they do so, the sirens start wailing and any further conversation is impossible. Now, what are you going to do? Well, at the very least, you're going to investigate. If there is a fire, obviously, you vacate the premises. If there isn't a fire, you're still going to go and check before carrying on with your work. The one thing you won't say to the person who tells you that there's a fire on the 12th floor is, I can't be bothered. Or, how interesting, but do nothing. Another thing you won't say is, I'm in the middle of a conference call, could you come back later? Another thing you won't say is, well, you might think that there's a fire on the 12th floor, but frankly, I'm a tad chilly here. Doesn't seem much like a fire to me up here on the 21st floor. The fact of the matter is, someone has said to you with some urgency that there is a fire. So at the very least, you need to check out whether the messenger is a savior or a psychopath. The claim that there is a fire on the 12th floor is either the supreme fact of the day or else a gigantic hoax or someone's just burnt the toast. Either way, it merits investigation. And that's what we're going to do for the next few minutes. The first part of this address uh, will look at the evidence for the resurrection. Then the second part uh, we're going to talk with Ellie, who's a lawyer, about her take on the resurrection. And then the final part, we'll look at the, the consequences of the resurrection. A sort of, so what? So what's the big deal? And I'm warning you now that uh, there are three parts to this address, just in case you get disappointed when I stand up again. Okay, it's going to happen. <laughs> so what's, what of the evidence? Well, the first issue in question is the credibility of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the other New Testament writers, Peter and Paul. If the resurrection didn't happen, then these men 
are either pathological liars or seriously deluded. Because they say that what they are writing is the truth. It really did happen. They were prepared to die for this truth, and many did. The principal focus of the four Gospels is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So were the Gospel writers just trying to pull off one enormous con trick? Do the Gospels, and let's face it, whatever one's take on it, the Gospels contain some of the finest moral teaching ever written. Do the Gospels read like the rantings of madmen? I think not. But to believe that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, one has to believe that the writers of the New Testament had all got it massively wrong. They were there. They saw him die. Second line of evidence is, did Jesus actually die on the cross? What is sometimes called the swoon theory. It goes like this that Jesus was flogged after his trial, he was crucified, he was certified dead by a professional executioner, he was wrapped in a shroud many times, uh, a shroud that contained 100 weight of spices, and placed in a tomb with a stone rolled over the mouth of it that would have weighed about half a ton. Then, after two days, without water or food, he revives. He rolls back the stone on his own. He overpowers two Roman guards who would have been, as we've just heard in our reading, who would have been punished, quite probably executed for failing, for, for dereliction of duty. And then, having done all that, he not only convinces the disciples that he's alive, but that he's actually come back from the dead. This theory says that Jesus never actually died, he just swooned, and then he came to. I have a friend who says, it's unbelievable what you have to believe to be an unbeliever. Okay, I think the most plausible take is that Jesus really did die. I think the swoon theory is totally implausible. The third line of evidence is what happened to Jesus' body. Because we all agree that the tomb was empty on the first Easter day. Even Jesus' opponents recognized that he wasn't there. So would the Roman soldiers have taken Jesus' body? Well, absolutely not. They had mounted the guard to make sure that no one stole it. They'd have faced execution if they had done. Would the Jewish authorities themselves have removed it? Well, they had absolutely no reason for wanting to do that. They'd been plotting Jesus' downfall for years, some of them. Now, finally, they had got their man, and they wanted to keep tabs on him. They were very happy to keep him exactly where they knew where he was. And indeed, as we saw in our reading, they'd heard that the disciples might be interested in his body, so they wanted him kept right there. The Jewish authorities wouldn't have stolen it. What about the disciples? Might they have taken the body? Well, surely not. Here were a group of men and women, depressed and defeated, following the death of their leader, living in fear of their lives. They really thought that they were the next for the chop. 
And they certainly didn't expect Jesus to rise again. And we know that from their surprise and delight when Jesus actually appears to them. And yet a few weeks later, these very same disciples were risking prison, torture, and even death simply for preaching that Jesus had risen from the dead because they were absolutely convinced that he had. Now, if they had stolen Jesus' body and hid it somewhere else to sort of put out this theory of a, a resurrection, would they really be willing to die for a lie, given what lily-livered people they had been at Jesus' trial? I think it's highly implausible. Well, what about somebody, would somebody else have stolen Jesus' body? Because the body was, we have to give an account for where the body was somewhere. Perhaps somebody went to the wrong tomb and found that empty and then built a whole religion that had a global impact on a simple misapprehension. One person has even suggested that the gardener was responsible for all this talk about a resurrection. He was fed up with all these people, disciples, Roman soldiers, Jewish authorities, trampling across his garden and flattening his seedlings that the gardener removed Jesus' body and buried it elsewhere. As I say, it's unbelievable what you have to believe to be an unbeliever. So, given that the tomb was empty, and if Jesus' body hadn't been stolen, what is the alternative? Well, given the implausibility of the body-snatching theories, and given the ring of truth in the eyewitness accounts in the Gospels, it seems to me that the resurrection is the most likely explanation for the missing body on that first Easter day. But those early disciples were not convinced that the resurrection had happened simply because the tomb was empty or other circumstantial evidence. They believed because they met with the risen Christ. Jesus appeared to his disciples. We read elsewhere that he ate breakfast with them. He broke bread with them. He walked and talked. On one occasion, we read that he met with more than 500 people on one occasion. And Paul goes on to say most of them are still alive. In other words, if you don't believe me, check it out for yourself. Go and ask them. It was the faith of the early disciples that Jesus had been resurrected that led to the spread of the Christian faith throughout the ancient Roman world in a matter of 30 years. Thousands upon thousands of lives were changed. Throughout history, right up to the present day, millions of Christians have reached the conclusion that the resurrection is true and not just that Jesus rose again from the dead 2,000 years ago, but that he is alive today. That he changes lives today. That he can be our guide and companion today. Now, I started this first part by mentioning Professor Sir Norman Anderson. And you'll see that he is the author of the little booklet that was placed on, on each seat this evening. Do read it. And if you want a, a fuller uh, ex, uh, exegesis of the uh, evidence for the resurrection, there's another book, a more uh, substantial book, on the table just here called The Case for Christ. Uh, do please take a copy if you'd like one.
But Norman Anderson didn't just believe in the resurrection as a historical fact. He lived it. He had a son called Hugh. Hugh was a brilliant student at Cambridge. He was president of the union. In his final year, he won a starred first. But at the age of 21, Hugh contracted cancer and died. A few days later, Professor Anderson kept a long-standing engagement to speak on BBC Radio 4's Thought for Today, the religious slot. And he chose chose to speak on the resurrection. This is what he said. He, well, he, went, he explained why he was convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. And then he concluded his thought by saying this. On this faith, I am prepared to stake my life. In this faith, my son died after saying, I am going to my Lord. I'm convinced he was not mistaken. Do please be seated. So um, I'm delighted to say that um, amongst the many members of the legal profession at St. Michael's, um, Ellie has very kindly agreed to come and uh, be asked as a lawyer about her her take on on the resurrection. But Ellie, perhaps first of all I can ask you um, just a little bit, tell us sort of who you are, for those who don't know you, a little bit about yourself, where you, who you are, where you work, that kind of thing. Um, well, I don't claim any particular adaptive analysis that you don't all possess yourselves before you um, <laughs> criticise at the end. Um, but I um, was a criminal barrister for three years. Then I um, worked representing military witnesses to a public inquiry called Al Swady um, that you might have seen reported in the press earlier this year. Um, the end conclusion was that um, a lot of what had been said by the Iraqi complainants um, was not true, um, and the British military were gloriously vindicated for the main part. Um, Now I represent the Department of Health and the Department for Work and Pensions um, dealing with um, challenges to the bedroom tax, amongst other things. And um, you've recently got engaged, haven't you? There's 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 a sort of legal sort of... um well, you've got, basically got engaged to the law, haven't you? Well, I, I thought I was marrying a policeman, but he actually got off the job on Friday, not as a policeman, so um, potentially not. Great. Anyway, many congratulations on your engagement. Now, Ellie, as a, as a lawyer and as someone who's worked as a, as a criminal barrister, I was wondering if you could say something about um, how you see the, sort of the evidence for the resurrection stacking up for you. Well, I suppose one of the things that I have probably seen more of than most people is witnesses um, giving evidence and being cross-examined and Tim and I were chatting about this the other day and Tim said his experience on a jury was broadly similar to to mine at the bar which is that you hear the prosecution case and it all sounds quite convincing and you think they must be guilty Um, and then you hear the case for the defense by the end of which you're usually um, not quite so sure Um, and so it is undoubtedly true that um, people give false evidence um, people lie People are innocently mistaken. Um, Things get lost in in transmission. Um, I think for me, um, when I started thinking about whether the gospel was true, the thing that was most convincing um, is the letters, because I can't see how you could have ended up with the the letters written um, 
at the time that we know they were to the audience that we know they were um, if it was all based on a whole load of lies. I can just about see um, how you might make up the gospel, although how you might make up four gospels that tie in so well with the Old Testament is a bit, bit trickier, but I can just about see that, that you might do that um, and that you um, might, if you were particularly um, ill-willed towards the world, attempt to sell um, a story that was not true to the extent that the Gospels would have to not be true. But I don't see why you would write the letters to the church around the world um, that were written. Um, and I think for me, that's probably the strongest thing. Um, but even with the Gospels, when, when you look at them, there are things that don't add up if they were um, made up. There's no reason why you would admit if you were um, the apostles to having been stupid and wrong on so many occasions. Um, there's no reason why you would have Jesus facing death um, and apparently having a crisis of confidence um, and crying out to, to the Father. Um, and particularly, I don't think you'd write that way if you were trying to sell it to an audience of Jews who were well-versed um, in the Old Testament. Um, I, I think there's just a lot of things that, that just don't add up um, if it is all malicious lies. Can I, can I just ask you another question about uh, that sometimes people say the four different accounts of the resurrection in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John um, don't completely corroborate with each other. And because they're not identical, therefore, they must be wrong. How, how as a lawyer, might you address that one? What you often get in a, in a trial is witnesses um, giving broadly similar accounts but with details about which they're often quite convinced um, that, that don't tie up. Um, and you generally can't end up with a situation where your conclusion is that you either don't know what happened at all or that absolutely everybody is lying. Um, and I think it makes perfect sense if you're collecting eyewitness accounts that you get... That if you, in fact, if you speak to two people five minutes after a car accident, they'll tell you that different things happened, even if they both saw precisely the same thing. And they'll agree on the fundamentals, um, but they'll disagree on something. It's absolutely um, inevitably the case. And so that doesn't particularly trouble me. And I, I have to say, uh, as a former schoolmaster, when I mark essays that were word for word the same, um, <laughs> funnily enough, suspicions were aroused. <laughs> but um, Ellie, perhaps... Um, so, so what are, you, are you saying that, uh, therefore, for you, the, um, the, the, the evidence for the resurrection doesn't, doesn't present any particular problems for you? I think there are, there are certainly questions that arise, and some of those questions um, I don't think we can find answers to. Um, we are now a long way further down the line historically, um, and I don't think it's surprising that there are some things that... We don't quite understand how they fit together um, or that give rise to um, concern. Um, but, and, and particularly, I think one of the things that I find difficult is the existence of the false gospels and the fact that there clearly were people around who were, for whatever motive of their own, um, writing down things that were judged by the early church not to be accurate and not to be reliable. Um, and I find that quite challenging. Um, but in terms of the... Um, the overall conclusions um, that are drawn. Um, I, every time I go back to it, I find that I find answers to more of the questions. I think of a, um, a scruple, um, and then I find that actually someone else has thought of that scruple, and they've been and researched it, and they've checked the historical consistency, and actually they've found that it does add up. Perhaps, um, Ellie, finally, we can just move on to the sort of so what. 
of the, of the resurrection. Um, and perhaps I can ask you, what difference has it made to you since you became a Christian uh, to know that Jesus died and rose again? What difference does the resurrection make to you as a Christian? Well, I was brought up in a Christian household, and I can't remember ever um, not believing in God and um, ever actively not believing in the resurrection. But when I came to think about um, what that meant for me, I found that all of a sudden I had lots of doubts that I had to look into. Um, And coming to the conclusion that the overwhelming likelihood um, from the historical basis is that it's true and that um, what, um, and that my experience of God, my experience of the world um, matches up with that means that when those doubts do come back, um, I can go back and look at the historical stuff for the reassurance that I haven't just imagined all of this. Um, And to know that I um, sing evidently. Um, And I've done that for a long time. And to know that the words that you're singing are true is amazing. There are such wonderful, wonderful words in hymns um, and in all of the choral repertoire. And I sang them for years and years and years, sort of broadly agreeing that they were probably true, but not giving it any greater thought. And to sing them knowing that, to be able to sing, this is my friend, the creator of the universe died for me and is my friend. It's just extraordinary. Great. Well, Ellie, thank you so much for sharing all those things with us. And um, we look forward to September the 5th, isn't it? Great. Thank you so much. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 3 to 6. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can't go on the internet these days or open a newspaper without seeing advertisements either for remarkable weight loss programs or something that you might think is quite dear to my heart, hair restorer. You see these amazing before and after pictures. Morbidly obese women shoehorned into swimming costumes within four weeks transformed into Cara Delevingne lookalikes and with a wonderful wardrobe makeover to boot. Just follow this one simple step, they say, and you'll be transformed. Anti-balding treatments are even more dodgy. The before photo is suspiciously dark, grainy, and smudgy, and the bald bloke is overweight, sad, and undeniably bald. The after photo is sharp and clear. He's now in the peak of health. He looks 10 years younger at least. He's happy, slim, and athletic, and crucially, with a frankly alarming amount of hair. Fill in this form, they say, and we'll send you the miracle cream. You'll be transformed. I have to say, I've never been tempted. 
Now, when it comes to the resurrection, we have a classic before and after story. There's no doubt in the New Testament that the disciples were utterly transformed by their encounters with the risen Christ. Let's take the Apostle Peter, for example. Before Jesus' resurrection, we see him at Jesus' trial. And in spite of all his protestations of loyalty, he denied that he ever knew Jesus. He denied that he ever knew Jesus three times. And big, bold, brassy Peter, the fisherman, denied that he ever knew Jesus three times to a little servant girl. He was embarrassed. He was weak. He was fearful. He wept at his pathetic failure. He was a defeated man. But now, after the resurrection, Peter begins his letter with the words from our third reading, full of joy. And that magnificent anthem that we've just had sung for us, picking up on some of these great truths about the resurrection from Peter's first epistle. And he's writing in this epistle to first century Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. They've been scattered by persecution throughout Asia Minor, forced to flee from their homes. Life for the early Christians was really tough. Perhaps they would have been tempted to ask, is this all really worth it? But Peter's opening comments are all about the wonder of the resurrection and the joy of being a Christian and having something that can never perish, spoil, or fade. These Christians, forced out of their country, running for their lives, leaving behind all their worldly possessions, will have often watched in horror as their family and friends were butchered or as fellow Christians were fed to the lions. But because Jesus has risen from the dead, Peter highlights two transformational things that hold true. A new joy and a new hope. Let's look at those two. The new joy. In the challenging context in, we, in which these early Christians find themselves, Peter begins with a note of triumphant joy. He, he says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How desperate these first disciples must have felt following Jesus' death. They'd let him down. They'd forsaken Jesus. They'd run away. They'd watched him be crucified. But then they met with the risen Jesus. And their utter despair turned to unbounded joy. I'd love to see before and after photographs of their faces. There was a story in the newspaper a few years ago about a woman in the UK who was rung up by the Foreign Office to tell her that her son, who was on a gap year traveling in the Far East, had died attempting to smuggle drugs concealed inside his body. 
One of the 43 bags that he'd swallowed had burst and killed him. He'd been identified by his passport as one Paul Canning. The distraught family made plans to bring his body home and started preparing for his funeral. However, a few days later, the real Paul Canning walked into the British Embassy in Bangkok and reported his passport as having been stolen. His overjoyed mother said, It's fantastic. He was dead. He's now alive. The last ten days have been an absolute nightmare. Now it feels like a wonderful dream. I've rung the foreign office 12 times to check that he really is alive. It's a great story, isn't it? Imagine that was you and your son or your brother on his gap here. Imagine the joyful reunion when he got home. That's something of the joy that those first disciples felt on that first Easter day. And that's something of the joy that the Christian can experience today. Because Jesus is alive today. He didn't just come back to life 2,000 years ago and then live for a few more years and die as an old man and buried somewhere in Galilee. No, he's still alive. He's still with us today. Our sorrow can be transformed into joy today. The second transformation is that because of the resurrection, we have a new hope. Let me read to you again from our third reading. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. The disciples' despair at the death of Jesus was transformed into a living hope, a hope that can never perish, spoil or fade. I was thinking about the things that we typically hope for in this life. And hope usually leads to disappointment. Even if they are initially fulfilled, the joy often wears off. And even the joy of a, a relationship will one day end in bereavement. Our hopes will perish, spoil, and fade. And whether it's success, or relationships, or property, or status, or pension, whatever it is, these things will all perish, spoil, or fade. Other things will pass. As Peter puts it, the grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. That is God's promise of eternal life for those who trust in Christ. That, that promise extends for all time. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 again, he says, Our living hope is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, because Jesus rose from the dead, it therefore follows that 
for all those who put their trust in him, we will rise to heaven. Verse 4, our hope is our inheritance. It's kept in heaven for us. That's why we hope for it, because we haven't yet achieved it. But one day, as we trust in Christ, so we will. A number of us this last Tuesday were at Julieta Lazarova's funeral, a member of this evening congregation. On one level, of course, it was a very sad occasion. The things of this life perish, spoil, and fade. It's a terrible loss on one level. But from a Christian perspective, we are also reminded of the great hope that we have in Jesus Christ, that death is not the end, that it's a glorious new beginning. And although, of course, we naturally grieve, yet we rejoice for the person who trusts in Christ that they have already achieved their inheritance. It's party time for Julieta. We grieve, she doesn't. Because death is not where our journey ends, but wonderfully, it's where our, a new journey begins, a new life with Christ begins. Death is not a terminus, but a junction. This hope, what Peter calls our inheritance, is the birthright of all those who trust in Christ. And Easter is an annual encouragement to lift our eyes to see the joy of the resurrection and to remind ourselves of the hope that the resurrection brings, both Jesus' resurrection and ours. But it's not just an annual encouragement. Every Sunday, it's a weekly encouragement as we meet together to worship, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In fact, this great hope, which gives us great joy, is the day-by-day -day blessing of the Christian. So may I encourage you to enter into that blessing this Easter, this day, and every day. This little booklet by Sir Norman Anderson uh, is for you. If you'd like it, please take it. Uh, please read it. If you're going to take it, please read it. If you're not going to read it, please leave it. We'll give it to someone who'll read it. If you like it, please give it to a friend. And may we all know that inexpressible and glorious joy of the risen Christ this Easter and always. Amen.